0: Welcome everybody. My name is Michael Suarez and it's my great privilege to introduce this evening's speaker for the fourth of our summer lectures here at Rare Book School. Marina Rusto is the Kidori A. Zilka Professor of Jewish Civilization in the Near East at Princeton University and Director of the Princeton Geniza Lab which brings students and specialists together to decipher and digitize medieval documentary sources in Hebrew and in Arabic script. The recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2015, she is the author of Heresy and the Politics of Community, the Jews of the Fatimid Caliphate in 2008. Her most recent book, The Lost Archive, Traces of a Caliphate in a Cairo Synagogue, published in 2020, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. The reviewer in the Times Literary Supplement called it a brilliant book. Another reviewer paid an even greater tribute, declaring Not only does this book take its readers on a fascinating journey into the past, but it also teaches future historians by example, how to truly see documents in all their complexity as texts with multiple layers of meaning, as unique objects with their own biography, and as members of a collective entity pregnant with social meaning. Professor Rusto's current research interests include petitions to medieval Muslim sovereigns, the material culture of medieval Cairo, taxation and fiscality in Fatimid, Egypt, and Jews in the medieval Indian Ocean trade We are delighted to have her with us all the way from Athens. That's not Athens, Georgia, but Athens, Greece, as in Hellas, where it's 1230 in the morning. Please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Marina Rusto.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. And um, it's wonderful to uh, be here this is my first time at the Rare Book School, and it's really nice of all of you to, uh, to join us. So, I'm going to talk to you uh, about recycling and reuse. Um, using discarded texts as supports for new texts is a phenomenon that uh, many of you who work on rare books have undoubtedly noticed in various forms palimpsests, um, recycling texts and book bindings or outright reuse of paper with no attempt to erase the previous inscription. Um, It's that last type um, that's the form that I'm gonna be focusing on, Um, paper reuse, especially the reuse of government documents. But which government? So I study the Islamic world before 1500. um, And if you take a look at the view from Cairo, you'll see that in fact, there are two cities there, there's Fustat and Cairo. So, Cairo, properly so called, didn't exist until 969 when a dynasty of caliphs entered Egypt who claimed descent from Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad, and um, called themselves the Fatimid Caliphs. They were the first rulers who had ruled Egypt from Egypt in roughly a thousand years. So, they turned out to preside over uh, a flourishing of trade, architecture, and other material culture that reverberated across the Mediterranean. Um, and beyond. This is a gate that they built in Cara that still stands today. Um, And so if you have a look at this map of the Mediterranean in the early 10th century, focusing on the Islamic uh, Mediterranean. you'll see that in the sort of lavender purple areas are um, the Abbasid Caliph and the area's loyalty to the Abbasids. And if you look at the green, these are the Fatimids. So they arose in central North Africa, Iphiria, which is just an Arabization of Africa because it was the Roman province of Africa. Um, and then if you keep looking at the map, this is what's going on in the late 10th century. So by now the Fatimids have taken over also um, the Eastern Mediterranean and um, Egypt and what is today Libya. Um, So they are an enormously important dynasty, despite the fact that they are often kind of regarded as an afterthought um, or a sideshow in the rest of the run of medieval uh, Islamic history. Um, The Fatimids were Shiites, so they have been dismissed as heretics or somehow exceptional, so we can ignore them in favor of the putatively more important Sunni dynasties. But their contemporaries would not have found them easy to dismiss. Um, And uh, again, if you look at this map of the Mediterranean, you can see that they were kind of like the, you know, the 400 pound gorilla um, in the Mediterranean. Um, And people would imitate them um, for a couple of centuries, even after the fall of the dynasty in 1171. Um, The first big imitator was the Umayyad Caliph of Cordoba who in 929, arrogated the title of caliph precisely in order to kind of beat the Fatimids at their own game. Um, And then ultimately it it was Christian rulers, the Norman kings of Sicily, who did the most to kind of perpetuate Fatimid aesthetic norms um, and continued to do so even after the Fatimids no longer existed. So um, a contemporary commentator in the late 10th century who witnessed the Fatimid takeover of Egypt um, and himself had absolutely nothing to do with the Fatimids. So, you know, relatively objective observer um, said, Baghdad has been superseded, meaning the Abbasid realm has been superseded until the day of judgment. Egypt's metropole has become the greatest glory of the Muslims. So the Fatimids built Cairo um, and Cairo remained the city from which Egypt was ruled along with Syria, most of the time, up until 1517 when the Ottomans conquered it. And at that point, Egypt was no longer ruled from Egypt. Um, So that was Cairo properly so-called. It was simply a Fatimid-Palatine complex. Um, But where people actually lived was Fustat. So this is the um, area that you see to the south. And eventually there's infill in between um, Cairo and Fustat and it becomes one um, kind of megalopolis, especially after 1250. On the inset map of Hussat, you can see a bunch of yellow buildings. Those are Christian churches that still exist today, medieval Christian churches. And then there's a small blue building, which is a medieval synagogue. That's the Ben-Ezra synagogue. And inside the Ben-Ezra synagogue, um, which is which you're looking at now. So this is, this is the interior of the Ben-Ezra synagogue. It's not as it looked in the middle ages. In fact, um, the synagogue was completely refurbished, possibly even raised to the ground and rebuilt um, although the work remains to be seen about that, um, in the 1890s. Um, Nonetheless, this is like the best sort of simulacrum that we have of the medieval Ben Ezra synagogue. And if you look to, so we're in the mezzanine right now in the women's section. And if you look on the left-hand side, there's a kind of opening in the wall. So that was the opening of a very big chamber, storage chamber um, in which the this particular Jewish congregation and the various communal offices associated with it began to discard their uh, disused papers, starting in 1020 when the synagogue was built. So, from 1020 all the way until 1897, um, when the chamber was finally completely emptied, um, you had paper, parchment, and actually very little papyrus, which was obsolete by the time the synagogue was built, um, filling up this chamber. That is known as the Cairo Geniza. And that's what I've spent most of my career studying, um, although it yields, has yielded, and it will continue to yield many, Many surprises. So the name Karaganiza comes from the Hebrew phrase Beitgeniza, which is a storage chamber for worn texts. Um, and the basic idea in um, at least medieval Jewish tradition is that any text in Hebrew script could potentially contain the, the name of God and so shouldn't be casually discarded. Um, in fact, the and so it would be put in this storage chamber eventually. Some some of it was buried in um, in a, in a cemetery in Cairo, the Besatim cemetery. Um, but most of it just kind of remained and accumulated over the centuries. Um, in fact, the actual practice of Geniza wasn't always about Hebrew script. So that's something to keep in mind as well, is that if if we were to go and do field work among the Jews of 11th and 12th century Cairo, and we asked them, you know, why do you put things in the Geniza? We'd probably get many, many different answers. So, um, this storage chamber for worn texts eventually came to include um, an enormous variety of material. The vast majority of it dates from about three centuries between 950 and 1250. So the synagogue was rebuilt starting in 1020, but by then people were already discarding old papers. Um, the grand total of what's been found has been estimated at 400,000 pages or fragments of pages. Um, We don't have good numbers for a bunch of reasons that you can probably imagine. What do you count um, as, you know, what's a bifolio? Is that one page, two pages, four pages? Um, So there's a big problem with numbers, but this is just to give you a ballpark figure. Um, About 90% of which contain texts that were meant for posterity. And I'm putting books in quotation marks because, um, as you all know better than I, um, a book in the Middle Ages could be many different things. So this is the fragment of a codex. Um, in this case, a codex of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and the Hebrew Micrography is um, Masoretic uh, comments, which is basically grammatical and other sorts of comments on the text itself. So kind of early philologists, starting in the seventh and eighth centuries. Um, so tiny little fragment of what you can nonetheless tell was part of a codex because you see holes where they're um, would have been a binding, as well as some restoration marks from the library. Um, these are bifolios that belong to three separate choirs of a copy of Ben Sira, the Book of Ecclesiasticus, which the Jews had actually declared non-canonical um, in, in pretty early on, sort of like third, fourth century, um, but which Jews nonetheless still read um, well into the 10th and 11th century um, despite the fact that in the 19th century, people believed that the book had only been preserved in Greek. But when the Geniza was discovered, it turns out that, no, in fact, we actually had copies of the Hebrew original of Ecclesiasticus. And um, these are some of the earliest fragments that were actually identified from the Geniza. Um, these particular uh, choirs have only been very recently reconstructed. Um, a book, so th- the codex was kind of, you know that's the, the form of the book that we know and love, but in fact, it was the rarest form Um, of the book that you would find um, in this period, because most of the books were much simpler. They were user copied, rather than professional scribally copied manuscripts. Um, This is one in Arabic script, and it's basically just a choir, and that was much, much more common than to have a full full codex. Um, Here's another example of a choir. This was probably not meant for circulation. Um, This is liturgical poetry on Genesis, although much liturgical poetry did end up being copied for posterity. Um, Here is another form of the book, which is a horizontal scroll. So in this case, a Torah scroll, which is um, canonically, I mean, when you read from the Torah in a synagogue, it should be from a horizontal scroll, but there were also vertical scrolls, rotuli. So this is Hebrew liturgical poetry um, written in rotulus form. And you can see you can fit an enormous amount of text there. And we'll be coming back to the road to this later because it's an important part of the story that I want to tell. So this is the, um, the largest cache of Hebrew manuscripts ever discovered. Um, and the vast majority is literary. And I emphasize this always because actually what the Geniza is much more famous for is um, having yielded um, documentary material. Um, which is what I study. So um, we don't know how much. Again, this is like only an estimate. But I'm my latest figure that I'm kind of giving publicly is forty thousand um, documents. I have thirty thousand confirmed, and I know that's not. Haven't gotten to the bottom of it yet. Um, so the Geniza was not an archive, um, but it does contain. It did contain many archives, especially archives of long distance traders and of the Jewish community, and that makes the documentary portion of it particularly fascinating to work on because it's a very dense and very coherent um, cache of papers. So that's my bread and butter as a historian, is documents, but documents, especially in Hebrew script. So what does that mean exactly? Well, actually not that much of it is in in Hebrew, much of it is in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic in Hebrew characters, as well as some some Aramaic, some Ladino for the later texts and so forth, lots of different Judeo languages. But around 2000, Oh, this is an, sorry, this is an example of a document, this is a Jewish marriage contract, um, in some combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, and you can see the signatures at the bottom. This one is on parchment, um, and this is a letter on paper um, in Judeo-Arabic from a Jewish trader in Dahlak, um, which is a Red Sea port, um, going on route to India, as many people did in the uh, 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. He's originally from Tripoli in Libya, and he's writing to his brother-in-law back home, and basically he's complaining about the voyage, um, but he's complaining very eloquently in, in kind of rhyming prose in Arabic, um, thinking of various ways to describe the cities that he's seen, um, you know, how horrible they are. Essentially, he's talking about what an awful journey he's had. Utterly terrible places, and then he says, um, "The boat that they put us on when we um, finally left the Mediterranean region and went to the to the Red Sea sailing um, contained not a single nail of iron. May God protect us with His shield." Like you get these fantastic, you know, details of um, of traders' lives. So around 2007, um, after I'd finished my PhD and just before publishing my first book, um, I was very excited about the possibility of. Um, you know, exploring more of the Geniza world, which I'm now finally getting back to after this long interlude that I'm gonna describe to you um, because it really does stretch all the way to Southeast Asia to my to my enormous surprise. Um, but I sort of took this detour because I started noticing that Geniza collections of which there are 60, um, so most of them are at uh, at Cambridge University, second biggest collection is Giuseological Seminary, after that St. Petersburg and lots of smaller, but, but also very important collections. Um, so I started noticing that Geniza collections, um, these are two titles that if you're interested in reading about the actual history of discovery of Geniza, these are both fantastic reads. One is out, Sacred Trash, came out in 2011. Um, and the second one by Rebecca Jefferson, the Cairo and the Age of Discovery in Egypt is due out, um, I believe in January of 2022. And um, that is, the one that i'm very very excited um, to come out i've been i've been waiting for that um so i started to notice things like this in Gineza collections um so what are we looking at here we're looking at some um large and very calligraphic lines of arabic script with very wide line spacing and some hebrew writing in between so i thought a couple of things i thought one documents with that are this calligraphic with such wide line spacing surely have to be important in some way But second of all, if they're important, then surely somebody must have published all of them already. So the first thought was correct. They actually were important. The second turned out to be incorrect, although several dozen of these Arabic script texts have been published by two pioneering philologists, S.M. Stern, who died in 1969, and Jeffrey Kahn, who's very much with us, although he's working on other things now. Um, In fact, hundreds of these um, remained unidentified because it turns out they're very difficult to read, despite their being in colorographic Arabic. Um, there are various other technical features of the script that make them challenging. Um, So those are the first two things I thought. Then I thought, what the heck is this? And then I thought, um, I really need a team to help me with this. This is more than the work of of one person. Um, So what's going on here is that um, the Arabic text um, is a decree of investiture from the Fatimid caliphs, bestowing titles on a Muslim judge, on a Qadi. Mind you, this was found in a Geniza. So what is this doing in the Geniza? Well, what it's doing in the Geniza is that eventually it was reused, in this case for a Hebrew calendrical uh, text. Um, so we have not just any Arabic text here being reused for a very run-of-the-mill and ephemeral Hebrew text. So I wasn't quite prepared for that for a number of reasons. I was—I always read that apart from the Jewish congregation that was responsible for, for preserving the Geniza, In fact, the medieval Middle East didn't produce very many documents, um, and the governments of the medieval Middle East, in particular, I was told, did not keep their documents around. Um, so, along with everybody else in my field, I assumed that medieval Middle Eastern states didn't keep archives, um, whether because they were too weak to write and keep documents, or because they were so strong that they didn't want to keep or write documents, right? So these are two totally separate theories, both on a single premise. Um, Theory number one is Middle Eastern states were so weak that they just did a kind of seat of the pants government. Um, They didn't need documents because there were arbitrary decisions that were being made um, without any paper trail. Um, And the second theory being um, good old fashioned Oriental despotism, why did they need documents and archives because in fact there were arbitrary decisions being made by kind of strong men so these were i mean i'm caricaturing but these were kind of the two extremes between which theories of middle eastern governance in the middle ages ran so there's still this notion um that at least in western scholarship goes back to max favor um that bureaucracy is an invention of modern europe and what i Gradually came to realize in studying this is that it isn't the most common uh, invidious distinction that gets made in the literature, and this still um, you you will still read this. Um, there's a kind of document envy where people who work on the medieval Middle East say that no, actually it's the it's medieval Europe that has all the documents, and you know we should be so lucky. Um, in fact, though, very few original European documents from before. 1200 survive in archives because of the cartulary problem, um, which is to say that many, many documents from before 1100, 1200 turned out to be summarized and copied in cartularies. So in fact, we don't actually have access to the originals. Um, Adam Costa at Columbia has estimated that if you take all the documents that have been recovered from the Middle East after the rise of Islam in the seventh century until about 1200, in fact, there are many more that have survived from the Middle East than from Europe. Um, And as for the documents that have survived in Europe, historians will find them in archives of modern national vintage, right? So they don't actually tell us that much about pre-modern archiving practices. But this isn't just about document envy. It's also about a set of assumptions that follow from this putative dearth of medieval Middle Eastern documents there's a very interesting statement of it um, this is a book from 1993 knowledge and social practice in medieval damascus by michael chamberlain which is an excellent book but it's an excellent book that begins with a premise that um that got me thinking for a very long time until i until i realized what i needed to kind of do with it um what what Chamberlain says that in the high medieval Middle East, rulers maintained patrimonial, if not absolutist claims, considered most of the wealth of their subjects their own, and permitted other social bodies, none of the formal autonomies they had in Europe. Individuals, households, religious bodies, and groups did not brandish documents as proofs of hereditary status, privilege, or property to the extent they did in the Latin West, nor were their strategies of social reproduction recorded, sanctified, or fought out through documents to the extent that they were in Europe. So the idea here is that um, it's it's again an iteration of the idea that you didn't have documents because you didn't need them because the way social claims were made was totally different. Um, you didn't do it in legal cohorts, you didn't do it with deeds of title, you didn't do it with um, other kinds of written proof, um, but rather you did it in things like biographical dictionaries. Um, so it was a kind of intellectualist um, culture. Um, In fact, the more I dug into this, the more I realized just on a a totally sort of prima facie level, territorially extensive multi-generational states need archives, legal systems need archives, all the more so legal system as complex as Islamic law. Um, The Middle East invented multi-generational empires and writing and archives long before Islam was ever a thing. So actually, it's the first place that I would look for a sophisticated system of documentation. Um, So that was some of the cognitive dissonance that I was trying to resolve when I started to notice an unmanageably large quantity of documents that look something like this. There weren't supposed to be any at all. And given that there were, how did they get into the hands of ordinary Jewish scribes who then scribbled on them in various ways? Okay, so fast forward a decade. Um, The medieval Middle East wasn't only lacking in documents. I discovered it was a region of great administrative complexity, um, predictable procedures, administrative stability, well-trained officials of great technical prowess. Um, Middle Eastern states had all the trappings of what Max Weber would have called bureaucracy. So what I came up with is um, in this book, which I'll give you an executive summary of in a moment, but more importantly, I wanna take you behind the scenes a bit to some of my initially very fumbling efforts to draw up a big picture based on fragments, since that's so often um, what I was dealing with and also what those of us who deal with manuscripts do. So this is the image that I chose for the cover. Um, It's part of a, a larger illustration of two angels Uh, recording human deeds for God's final judgment, which is based on um, a verse from the Quran, um, the idea being that one of the angels records the good deeds, the other one records the bad deeds. But this particular 13th century Iraqi artist has done a fascinating thing um, of depicting the angels as chancery scribes, chancery scribes with wings, but chancery scribes nonetheless, writing on long scrolls with wide line spacing. So I was interested in the image because I'd seen decrees like the long ones that these angels are writing up. And I'd seen them two sources. First, I'd seen ones that survived at the monastery of St. Catherine in Sinai, which is not a state archive, but rather a monastic library, but it's an archive nonetheless. Um, what they had in common with the decrees that the angels are writing up is first of all the support that they're that they're written on as paper. The format is that they are rotally very, very long. This one's four and a half meters long, but by no means the longest one that survived. Uh, sorry, there are longer ones that have survived is what I'm trying to say. Um, very wide line spacing. So 45 lines of text over four and a half meters in this case. They come in two basic widths, um, 43 or so centimeters wide and 21 centimeters wide. So this is one of the smaller, one of the, one of the narrower ones. Um, The layout is also um, predictable. The line spacing is very wide. The lines are boat shaped, which is to say that they dip down slightly and then they go markedly um, upward. Uh, If you actually look at the way the Arabic is arranged on each line, there's a kind of fragmented baseline, almost like a stair step effect, um, which leads to this impression of curvature. Um, of the lines, as well as stacking of words at the ends of lines. That's also one of the most kind of noticeable elements. Um, The script is also very specific. Um, This is a kind of quintessential Fatimid chancery hand. There are lots of people who wrote in Arabic in the Fatimid period, but the only ones who wrote like this were chancery scribes. Um, So these are very, they're very grand, um, grand texts to look at. They look different from anything else produced in the period. They embody what a colleague of mine at Johns Hopkins, Tamara Leithy, has called the sovereign privilege of waste. Um, the idea being, we're you know we're the caliph, we can do we can waste as much paper as we want. And because these decrees are supposed to embody the caliph himself, um, they must look commensurately impressive and grand. So I had seen the ones from Sinai, of which eight have survived. Um, And I had also seen fragments of state decrees in Geniza, although at first I had no idea what they were. So here's one of the documents that emerged early in my research. I didn't piece this together. This is composed of several fragments, as you can see. Um, This was pieced together by a colleague of mine named Ronnie Shweka, and the reason he was able to piece it together is he wasn't looking for the Arabic text, he was looking for the Hebrew script text on the other side, which was written much more densely on the page, so it's easier for him to make the join than it would have been for me since there are these vast areas of blank space. So again, the material qualities, the support is paper, the format is it's a rotulus. This particular one is only the left half of the rotulus and it's 21 and a half centimeters long, so presumably something like 42, 43, 44 to begin with. Um, And this is a meter 23 centimeters, but it was much longer, which I I can tell from the formula that we're just looking at a small chunk of it. Um, Again, you have the wide line spacing, the boat shaped lines, the fragmented baseline, stacking of words at the ends of lines. Um, All of the, the same features that I talked about are there. And the script likewise has those same technical features of the Fatima Chancery. Unlike the Fatimid Decree from St. Catherine, this one did not survive in an archive. It survived in the Geniza. And the only reason that it survived in the Geniza is that a Jewish scribe, whose name, it turns out, we know, um, because he has um, one of the very few handwritings that are totally unmistakable um, among all the Geniza scribes, um, he reused this Fatimid Decree in a moment of desperation for sermonic material. So how do I know he was desperate? Despite the fact that I have spent a lot of time in my mind with this uh, particular scribe, Ephraim Ben Shmaria? like I know what he ate for breakfast. Um, I know that he was desperate because first of all, he needed a long prefabricated rotulus to write on. And second of all, um, he needed a prefabricated text. And what he's done here is he's taken an eighth century Iraqi text and done a kind of free form, bricolage, um, rearranging it according to his um, needs. And the reason we know what his needs are is that at the very, very top of the page in Hebrew scripts here, it says Shabbat Bereshit, which means it's basically the first um, Sabbath of the liturgical year. So he was coming into synagogue with a, with sermonic material that he himself did not write because like all good medieval scribes when he needed material he plagiarized. Um, so this is kind of typical of the way these decrees got reused. They got reused for informal purposes um, and they were uh, often done in a hurry. And sometimes they got reused in other ways, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, I have a colleague in Paris, Judith el Schlanger. Um, I did not manage to actually find the article and put it on this slide, but it's supposed to be here, um, who wrote an article called Uh, something like Cheap Books from the Geniza, where she talks about the Rotulus as what she calls the third form of the Hebrew book. And what she's able to demonstrate is that the Rotulus is a very specific kind of format that gets chosen for performative purposes. So liturgical poets, when they need to scribble down um, the verses, because they remember the chorus, of course, um, for what they're going to be reciting in synagogue, they'll write it on a rotulus. Or a scribe who wants to write a version of the text that he has absolutely no intention of circulating to anybody else will write on a rotulus. These are kind of private texts that are meant as either mnemonics or um, or personal versions, um, and that's exactly what you have going on with the text that I just showed you, the sermon of Ephraim ben Shmaya. So. Um, this document ended up determining the direction of, um, of my book, The Lost Archive, in unexpected ways. Because I started focusing, not just on the contents of the documents, but also on how they survived or how they failed to survive. Whose hands did they pass through? How did they get into the hands of these particular scribes? Paradoxically, what I started to find is that these um, recycled uh, state documents are in some cases better evidence of archiving practices than you might actually find in an intact archive, particularly an archive of modern vintage, because you can actually trace not just what was preserved, but also what was thrown away and perhaps why it was thrown away. So, okay, but there was there were there were still problems to solve. Um, this illustration suggested to me that people in the medieval, medieval Islamic world were would have recognized these long vertical scrolls with the wide line spacing as being state decrees. At the same time, wide line spacing and the sheer length of these decrees made them particularly good candidates for reuse. So on the one hand, they're very grand, and on the other hand, they seem to be throwaways. So what's going on there? Um, if they're so impressive looking, if they're avatars of the Caliphs, um, and people actually seem to know what they are, then why are they being reused? And um, uh, and reused for in some cases for throwaway texts. So I'm going to give you a couple of like one more one or two more strange clues before telling you how I cracked the case. So this wasn't the only illustration of a decree that I found. Um, I also found this one. Um, actually, was brought to my attention by Melissa Reynolds, for which I was really grateful because this turned out to be extremely important in directing my thinking. Um, this is an illustration from a Universal History composed. Um, a generation or two after the angels, um, and and, uh, a thousand kilometers to the northeast. Um, And here we have a little bit more information about the kind of some of these um, decrees and particularly on, on the production end. So what you have here is a sovereign um sitting in the center of the illustration and you have some envoys wearing fantastic headgear on the left and then you have some of his officials on the right and one of his officials is a chancery um a chancery scribe and the chancery scribe um like the angels is writing a long decree with wide lines facing on his knee but unlike the angels he's got a pen box and an inkwell um you've seen these in museums the VA has some really nice ones Um, And then he's got this, which I had absolutely no idea what it was um, until I slowly began to realize that I had seen that before as well. Um, What what this kind of booklet-like thing is, um, is an archival copy of a Fatimid decree. Okay, so how did I figure that out? Um, Jeffrey Kahn, who I mentioned before, as having published some of these documents before he went on to do different things, published this text in 1986. And this is an archival copy of a Fatimid Decree. It's not a rotulus, it's a bifolio, as you can see from the fold down the middle. It's not long, it's rather compact, just 25 by 17 centimeters. There are 39 lines written over four sides rectal or so. Um, The line spacing is not particularly wide except at the beginning of the booklet um, for reasons I'll explain in a minute. The script is curvilinear, but it's not nearly as calligraphic as the grand decrees. Um, and there are also technical features of the script that make it um, cognate with the rotuli, but different enough from them. So how do we know that it's an archival copy? So first of all, there's a set of markings actually attesting to an administrative um, process. Um, up here uh, on the first page of the booklet, um, you have a summary of the contents of the decree presumably a summary for the archivist. Um, You also have this administrative header, that's where the wide line spacing comes in, saying this is the copy of a decree, and at the top of this decree, there is the signature of the caliph, and here is the text of the decree. So it tells you actually what it is, which is quite convenient. And then tellingly, there's an insertion over here in the margin, um, which has unleashed a kind of grammatical train wreck um, in Arabic where the pronouns don't agree, stuff that you'd never see like in a in a final version of a decree. Um, and that was a smoking gun for me because that demonstrated that this archival quote unquote copy of the decree, what I had always believed was a copy, was in fact composed before the grand rotali would have been composed. The person composing this archival copy was not writing it from a pre-existing finished text, or you would not have found an insertion creating a grammatical catastrophe. Um, But rather, uh, whoever wrote this archival copy was editing and perfecting the text on the fly, after which the grand rotulus was copied from it. So I started to think, okay, could this possibly been the order? And then I went back and I actually read the Chancery manuals. And I realized that's actually what they're saying only nobody really realized this before because it just isn't what you would imagine um, to be the case. But when you sit and you parse through the text, you realize that's what they're actually telling you is that you would write these archival copies and then they would be sent. The Archival copy comes before the performance copy. And here they are side by side, just to give you a sense of the size differential. Now, the order in which they're copied might not seem significant, but for me, it was because it told me something about the Grand Rotalee that I wouldn't have suspected. That the Grand rotoli were not in and of themselves actually that important administratively. They were not intended for the archive. They were rather performance pieces. So if you go back to this, um, oh yeah, I forgot to mention this. If you, if you look at these, if you look at the um, bifolio copy, you'll see that there are these two holes right in the middle of the page. Um, And if you go back to the Rashid Dean, you'll see that you have the same holes on his um, archival copies and they're actually strung through with string. So that's when I began to see the whole kind of picture of archiving taking shape, where these bifolios are meant for the archive, they are bound together with a kind of provisional stab binding. Um, And that's, in fact, how they're stored, whereas the Rotali are just drawn up in a very fancy and impressive way, but they're drawn up essentially as, um, what do we have now, hygiene theater, right? So this is like political theater, basically, these these massive performance um, pieces of decrees. So the stab binding, I here I rely on you. I don't know whether this kind of stab binding has a, a name. Um, you will tell me. Um, Islamic book bindings, the sewing in particular, um, is only beginning to be studied now. But two postdocs in Germany, Daisy Livingston and Michal Hradek, have both actually noticed the same phenomenon in the context um, of earlier and later medieval Arabic documents. Okay, so if you look back, if you look back um, at our archival um, decree, what I thought was kind of typical accidental wear and tear, like you would find in any Genese document, turned out to be part of a larger pattern of state documents stored in archives, bound with this provisional stab binding or eyelets. So this unassuming little bifolio then became a smoking gun for me. The grand rotoli were the copies, not the originals. The rotali may be grand and impressive to us, and they certainly would have been grand and impressive to those who saw them or heard them read aloud, which was of course the point, but they were mere avatars, less important than the archival originals. They were the ones that were sent out to the territory, to provincial officials and to petitioners. They weren't meant to be archived in their grand rotalis forms. The the massive decrees that I'd seen from St. Catherine happened to have been archived, but that wasn't actually their original purpose. Um, they were mere instruments of performance, and they could be jettisoned once they were read publicly. So in the book, I kind of went out on a limb, um, and I compared the rotally to um, Pete Townsend's instruments, um, the idea being that they can be destroyed, jettisoned, and uh, and totally smashed up after performance, and it just makes them all the more valuable and precious. So that's what seems to be happening, is that these um, grand decrees are in fact destroyed after serving their purpose. There's no reason to keep them because the archival decrees are kept in a much smaller and more sensible and compact form for the archive. So once I figured that out, I was in a position to understand or at least to delude myself into thinking that I understood um, why I had been defi- finding so many decree fragments practically littering the various Geniza collections that I was trawling in Cambridge, Oxford, London, Paris, and New York. Not only that, I had colleagues who had been writing to me with these things. So here is a bifolio, in this case, um, a copy of a passage from the Babylonian Talmud um, written uh, on a late Fatimid decree. Um, there were lots more fragments that came out. Some are written on the back in Hebrew, some are written between the lines in Hebrew. Um, this one is uh, folded into four and has some, um, some praise poetry for a Fatimid uh, military general. Um, on it in Hebrew script. And this one was turned into um, a codex. And uh, there were so many of these things, um, I started to wonder like, am I gonna have to go through all 400,000 fragments and hunt for them, which I never did. Um, But there were some shortcuts. So I went through the entire 1906 catalog of the Bodleian Geniza collection. And I came to realize that every time the catalogers, Neubauer and Cowley had seen one of these Arabic state documents, they had described it this way scribbling, to the point where every time I saw the word scribbling in the Bodleian catalog, I got really excited because I thought, Oop, here's another Fatimid document. So how then had these fragmentary decrees gone from the provincial officials who received them from the Chancery in Cairo to the Jewish scribes who reused them? The answer seems to be, and here I don't have like concrete evidence, I have suggestive, um, circumstantial and parallel evidence, um, that these decrees were, once they had finished their utility as performance pieces, sold as scrap paper on the paper market. Um, there was a Greek text that my colleague Naim Fantiham um, found in the papyrus collection in Vienna that contained, that was written on the back um, of a Fatimid decree. So Christians did this too, not just Jews. And not just Eastern Christians writing in Greek but also Western Christians writing in Latin. So this um, is a 12th century Genoese notary named Giovanni who Western medievalists know from a classic publication of the 1930s. Um, and he has made um, his notarial uh, notebook collection out of some recycled Fatimid style decrees. So I don't actually know 100% of these are Fatimid. They could be Norman, Sicilian, but it's Fatimid style. Um, It's the same practice persisted into the Mamluk period. Um, Another colleague of mine, Frederic Baudin, found um, Mamluk decrees, so 14th century decrees embedded in the notebook of a 15th century um, historian from Cairo, al-Makrizi. And there was even evidence of the same practice from outside uh, the Muslim-ruled world, from Dunhuang in Western China. Um, where Susan Whitfield brought to my attention um, a uh, 10th century decree um, that was reused again for a liturgical text, a Buddhist Dharani, which is like the kind of um, essence or mnemonics to do with a sutra. Um, So very kind of suggestive parallels here, which leads me to ask on a kind of, let's let's go to the world history level, is recycling government documents a weird thing to do? Well, not if you live in a pre-industrial economy in which you might own three garments over a lifetime. Um, Paper's not particularly expensive, but everything's handmade. So it's only in our post-industrial, post-plastic, post-container shipping, late capitalist world that recycling things like this might seem strange. It's really our problem much more than theirs. And in the few cases in which I could date both the decree and the reuse of the decree, I found some very short lag times, in some cases less than a decade. This suggested to me that officials were in the habit of pruning the archives, um, which again reinforced my suspicion that the Falklands had a sophisticated archive system, pruned early uh, and often. Um, So that is. a, a taste of um, what I've been struggling with over the last decade. Um, there's much more to be said that I don't have time to say um, now. But if you're curious, I can elaborate it, elaborate on it in the Q and A. Um, questions like when and why did Arabic script start to look this way? Was it the Fatimids who did it, or did it start before them? Um, why are these fancy pants documents on paper and not on parchment? Um, you know, qu- questions like that that got me really excited and going down lots of lots of rabbit holes when I was researching the book. Um, So to conclude, um, I can report that the medieval Middle East was in fact awash in state documents, um, and thousands have survived, Um, but I learned more than this. I learned a lot about working methods. Um, Philology, at least the philology that I was educated in, was really about manuscripts as containers for words. Um, it's it's much more the rare book world than anything else that has opened that, opened that up um, and kind of forced philologists to recognize that meaning lies in every part of the text. So instead of deboning texts, we should be considering the entire animal. Um, paratext had meaning for medieval scribes. So it should also have meaning for us as their interpreters and we should make an effort to interpret it. I learned about the ecology of medieval texts that archives aren't static, that there is a systole and a diastole Um, of archives, and these are signs of, in fact, a dynamic and sometimes very efficient system that we shouldn't be looking for static archives, we should be maybe thinking about archival practices rather than um, archives as ready made objects that we as historians can go in and just kind of mine for information. Sometimes you have to reconstruct the archive before you can actually mine it for information. And I learned that the empires of the medieval Middle East, probably like most pre-industrial empires, developed some very complex codes of document production and circulation, um, that they preserved some elements of prior imperial administrations while departing from them in key ways. And finally, I came to realize that the depiction of the medieval Middle East as lacking in written instruments is not just false, but also in many ways pernicious. It's pernicious because most historians of the medieval Middle East still write histories from narrative sources, chronicles, um, normative legal sources, philosophical works, biographical dictionaries, from codices that were copied for public consumption and intended for survival long into posterity. That makes for a very kind of like odd and different history writing um, from what most other subfields have done. Few fields of historical inquiry have ignored documents to the extent that um, we in medieval Middle Eastern history have. So the problem isn't just that we've written lost histories, but also that we've in some ways impoverished the discipline of history itself, preventing those of us who are after a global view of the human past from forming a fine-grained picture of the Middle East a thousand years ago. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you so much to Professor Marina Rostov for what has been a very fascinating lecture and look into um, the Genisa um, archive. So thank you so much for for having this lecture. Um, We are starting to see a few questions in the chat. So um, we'll have about 10 minutes to go over some of the questions. Um, The first question, Someone is asking if you could repeat the name of the person you mentioned in tandem with uh, Daisy Livingstone.
1: Yes, it is. Michael I will actually write his name in the chat so that Oh, right. here we go. Um, this is a paper that Michal gave at the International Society for Arabic Papyrology in March. Actually, um, so to the best of my knowledge, there is not yet a published version of it. But I'm uh, in touch with him, hoping for more.
2: Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, another question we have is: Was the Geniza archive dispersed? If they were, is there an account of how? Ah, uh, yes. So the
1: the story of the dispersal of the Geniza is um, fascinating, and it's actually been written. Sort of three times totally differently because we keep finding out more about it. Um, so the first is Stefan Reif's A Jewish Archive from Old Cairo, um, which came out in the 80s. Um, and that's mainly about the Cambridge collection. Um, the second is um, one of the ones that I showed um, on the slide with the two books, which went over fairly quickly. Um, Adina Hoffman and Peter Cole wrote a book called Sacred Trash. And um, that's, a, a, that's the story, not just of the dispersal of the Geniza, but also of the way scholars have kind of turned it and turned it over again and found very different things in it um, over the years. And then the um, definitive history of the discovery of the Geniza before the Cambridge collection was put together in 1897. So the sort of prehistory between 1882 and 1897 um, was written by Rebecca Jefferson and is due out in January of 2022. Um, so keep
2: an, keep an eye bookstores for that. Looking forward to it. Um, I have another question here. Um, I was surprised to see anthropomorphic angels recording good and bad deeds of humans and other characters with Arabic text. How did that circumvent the prohibition of graven images? So um, human representation
1: is problematic according to certain Um, schools of Islamic law, but there is no actual blanket prohibition on it. Um, And there are even uh, representations of the prophet Muhammad himself um, from medieval uh, manuscripts from the Islamic world. And there's been some very, very interesting work that's been done recently um, by art historians Um, showing not just that this was done, but also how these manuscripts were handled and treated and venerated in some cases by kind of like physically handling them, kissing them, touching them, things like this. So the the idea of um, an absolute prohibition of anthropomorphism is something that um, has been shown to be basically an exaggerated view.
2: Okay, thank you so much for that clarification. Next question is: Did the Fatimites trade to South Asia across the Indian Ocean? Are there traces of this trade in the geniza
1: I am so glad you asked that question. That's what I'm most excited about these days. That's what I—that's what I've been working on since the Lost Archive, because um, there there is robust and abundant evidence um, of trade uh, from basically connecting the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean with kind of Egypt at the hinge. Um, So lots and lots of uh, Guineas letters from Red Sea ports. Um, The port of Aden was a very, very big deal in this trade. And there's actually a whole book on the port of Aden in the Indian Ocean trade in the 12th and 13th centuries by Roxana Margariti. And we also know about a Jewish trader who spent almost 20 years living in India and then eventually returned to Egypt um, and brought his whole trade archive with him, um, which has now been, been published. Um, with translations from Arabic to Hebrew. Um, and what I'm uh, researching right now, what I've been spending the summer doing and it's completely blowing my mind is Jews in Southeast Asia. So I knew that there were Jews in the Western Indian Ocean trade. I was not expecting to see um, such robust and abundant evidence of Jews um, in the Eastern Indian Ocean trade, but it turns out they were there as well. Um, the evidence isn't as robust um, for that in the Geniza. It's more circumstantial. There are a couple of direct references um, enough to suggest that, that it's the tip of an iceberg, um, but it's actually fascinating because there's this question of what you find and don't find. In the Geniza. We know that there was um, very a very dense web of trade and communication between Jews in Egypt and Syria on the one hand and Iraq on the other, there just happens to be very little evidence of it from the Geniza. And that I think Mm -hmm. has to do with the specific social networks of the synagogue where the Geniza was preserved. So I think we're talking about the same thing with Jews in Southeast Asia. You see a bit of evidence of it, but there's probably more that theoretically could be
2: found if another Geniza were ever found. Fantastic, thank you so much. And I like that idea of uh, absences is not necessarily evidence of something not happening. Um, Another question, was there the idea that eventually Geniza documents would be buried or burned in a ritual?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. If you you go into rabbinic literature, there are all kinds of different ways that sacred text is supposed to be disposed of. And burning, in fact, is one of the canonical um, methods that are mentioned. Burial is an option that comes out later. Mm -hmm. Storing in a chamber in perpetuity is never actually mentioned in rabbinic literature. So the question is what's going on with that? Um, So this this goes back to what I said about if if you actually were able to do ethnographic field work um, among the Jews of medieval Cairo, like how many different ways of um, getting rid of sacred texts would you find? Um, There were, there was some burial of documents of the, in, in this particular community. There were medieval documents that were found in the um, Jewish cemetery in Basatin in Cairo, and also around the perimeter of the Ben Ezra synagogue compound itself, the courtyard, although those seem to have been um, later burials. Um, but we just, we don't have the, the stratigraphy to really understand um, that any better than we do now. We do know that in other Jewish communities, there were, there was like a, a wide variety of ways of handling this problem um, of, of how to get rid of text. So there's, um, and not only that, that it wasn't something that was restricted mm-hmm. to Jews. So in the um, courtyard of the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, there is a structure known as, the, known as the Dome of the Treasury um, which seems to have contained the same kind of jumble of old books and discarded documents as the Cairo Geniza did. Um, that was discovered right around the same time in the 1890s, but there's very little information available about it. There's a scholar um, working on it now in Berlin, Conrad uh, Hirschler, um, who also has some of his students working on it as well. And so we'll know more about that later. But the point is, it's a it's a Muslim Geniza, and um, it contained text, not just in Arabic, but also in Hebrew, in Syriac, in Latin and old French, because right, there was a crusade going on. Um, This seems to have been a region-wide phenomenon that wasn't specific to Jews, and it had many different iterations and and interpretations.
2: Okay, wonderful. And that might set way into the next question. Did mosques have anything similar to a Geniza? Yes, exactly. So the, mm-hmm. the, the Damascus um mosque is the best example
1: because it's the most closely parallel um, to the Khaira but it's not the only one. Um, there is another Umayyad era mosque, so Umayyads ruled um, 661 to 750, so this is these are like some of the earliest mosques we have, um, in Sana'a in Yemen, where in mm-hmm. the 1970s a number of discarded put-on manuscripts were discovered um, between, basically inured between the ceiling and the roof. Um, so kind of like an attic crawl space kind of thing. Um, and they were uh, actually some of the oldest Quran manuscripts still that have been discovered. Um, one is actually palimpsest, where the lower text um, potentially could date to within 30 years of the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so some, some very, very important steps. So it was clearly discarded books, but they were being discarded not in a casual way, but in a very deliberate way, where you kind of put them out of sight, out of mind. Nobody should mess with them. Nobody should look at them, and nobody should destroy them. So these kinds of, you know, sacred limbo for texts. And there's a, there's also a parallel um, non Middle Eastern example, which is Jin Huang. the Chinese decree that I showed, um, is actually from a cave that was sealed off that contains that contains something like sixty thousand uh scrolls um mostly you know buddhist literature and chinese and a little bit of sanskrit um that had been sealed off around 1100 and again it was one of these things where it was like behind a wall nobody had accessed it for ages so there does seem to have been some kind of you know cross-cultural
2: effect here okay um well um i know that we have quite a bit of questions left in the chat but unfortunately. Um, We'll have to um, close the session, but we will be sending the questions to Professor Rustow directly, um, which I'm sure she'll be very interested in reading all of them. Um, I'll be I delighted. Thank... And I might try yeah. to answer some of
1: them on Twitter, so you can, you can check there, too. I like, I like doing that after lectures.
2: We would love to see that. And um, thank you so much to Professor Rostow for taking the time for this wonderful lecture and for answering the questions we had the time to answer for today. Um, And now I would like to um, invite you to um, take part of the reception in Gather Town. The instructions are in the chat as well. And I will introduce um, Donna C. Uh, who will be talking about how to um, access GatherTown for those of you who have not done so before and would like to join us later. So thank you so much for the lecture and for spending time with us. A pleasure. Thank you.